Welcome to Too Much Not Enough, a podcast about the obsessions of two very intense people. I'm Darius Kazemi. I'm Emma Winston, and today we're going to talk to you about bots. I mean, I'd, I'd like to think that a lot of the people listening to this podcast have some idea of what a bot is. That maybe they don't. I mean, you know, there's a there, who knows, right? I don't know who's. This could be the year six thousand, and people are listening to this. I don't really know how to define a bot. Actually, like I know how I would describe the bots that I make, right. but they fall within quite a narrow remit. Um, so I have a working definition because I get asked this enough in like interviews. So my working definition is a bot is a piece of software that communicates with humans through a medium that was designed for humans to communicate with humans. You know, so for example, a piece of software that sits in a chat room and if you ask it for the definition of a word, it mm. gives you the definition of a word. That's an example of, of a bot. Yeah. Because even though we've had software to look things up before, it wasn't done through the medium of a chat room, which was designed for people to talk to each other. Mm-hmm. Similarly, if you get an automatic, like a robocall, like a reco- pre-recorded phone mm. call, to me, that's a bot because it's, an automa- it's a piece of software that's talking to you through the telephone system, which mm. was invented for humans to talk to each other. Oh, uh, okay. That is good. Yeah. That's really good. I've definitely been in a pub with you when <laughs> I was asked what a bot was and I didn't know how to define it and you just like left me to it. And you could have <laughs> I did, you that's true. Said I remember that. that. You could have said that. I can't Yeah, but I also I wanted it's to so see the floor to you. I it never occurred to me that it's specifically defined by a platform that's intended for humans. Well, my definition is very idiosyncratic. Uh, I like it a lot, but it hasn't gotten traction. Every other creative bot makers don't use that working definition. So, What is the more encompassing definition? Um, I don't like to think about it, so I don't really, I couldn't really rattle rattle it off to you. That's fair. um, But, but, you know, my definition kind of doesn't encompass, like, for example, an old, like, search engine spider that would, like, Mm -hmm. try and, like, crawl the internet and save as many web pages as it could. You Mm. know, like, that's not really a bot in the sense of what I'm talking about. Yeah. But also, I don't think it's what most people mean when they, like when systems administrators and old school people talk about bots, they might be thinking about like web crawlers and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But today when people say bot, I think it's much closer to my definition. Yeah, I mean, it kind of fills in the gaps of like the stuff that I never know how to define. The really broad definition is like any autonomous piece of software. I think I have described them to people before as like software automata. Right. And that would be where I would stop. But yeah, that usually makes them go, what do you mean by that? <laughs> Some background for listeners who might not have it. I'm going to gloss over this as quickly as I can. But basically, I started doing creative coding stuff in a way that got noticed by lots of people when I started making bots on Twitter that did things like write poetry and tell jokes and that sort of thing. And I eventually met Emma through her own bot making practice. I had a year where I was very intensely into bots and it was the most successful thing I've ever done for some reason. (laughs) I don't really know why, (laughs) but that's why we're friends. Um, Honestly, I think some of it is, I like working in new media because it's like, well, this may seem obvious, but it's new, right? Mm -hmm. which means there's plenty of novelty and there's plenty of unexplored space and people don't really have a preconceived notion of what they like and don't like in 
a new media space. Yeah. Whereas like music, which is like your primary medium, is very old. That is true. But I am constantly trying to find novel ways of constraining myself. Yeah, for sure. But also, and it has pluses and minuses, but I think if you ask the average person on the street what kind of music they like, they could probably give you some kind of coherent answer. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you ask them what kind of like interactive text bot things they like, they could not. (laughs) They'd be like, I'm sorry, what? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh, Which has its pluses and minuses. It means that there's stuff like institutional funding for music and uh, and like a market for it and that sort mm-hmm. of, so to speak. And there isn't for bots. But on the other hand, it also makes it easier to stick out in like a newer medium as, a, as an individual. Yeah. I mean, how new is it as a medium? Using my definition, I would say the first bots that exist as we would know it probably date back to the late 80s mm-hmm. in like Telnet-based chat rooms and muds multi-user dungeons like so these sort of proto online Mm. games and that kind of thing you know you could go back to the 60s with eliza which is probably the oldest like well-known bot who was this very simple algorithm where she would pose as a i believe as a rogerian psychoanalyst and basically what she does is she rephrases whatever you say as a question she's incredibly irritating she's very very irritating i don't think i ever fully determined if she was intended as a serious experiment or as a joke it was intended as a serious thing to see if a human-like agent could provide some kind of emotional outlet for a person because that had never been done really in in you know by that at that point to me it just seems like a searing indictment of <laughs> yes for sure and that's definitely what i take out of it as well it's not great <laughs> no it's not great but uh, but it's also it follows the pattern that a lot of the stuff that i do is which is like oh you know i can find a mode of communication that is so rote that i can write an algorithm for it and that's what this computer mm-hmm. scientist did he was like oh well yeah. if that's what that is then i can code something that does Mm. that i think this is why i find your stuff so funny because there's nothing i find more humorous than something completely non-sequitous that through sheer dogged repetition (laughs) is made to have a meaning that it previously did not yeah i think i have a lot of adult swim like space ghost and stuff to thank for like priming a generation to enjoy the kind of meaningless, like sort of repetitive humor. The oldest bots you can go back to the 60s for. And, you know, the techniques predate electronics, essentially. Mm. Like you can go back to Dadaist and surrealist writing type of practices and find similar stuff. But in terms of my definition of like software, I would say probably the late 80s is when these things started showing up Mm -hmm. in a more recognizable form. When would you say it started to be a thing in the kind of popular social media context that it is now? I think the first hit bot was probably Smarter Child on AOL Instant Messenger. I So I don't think I... I didn't have AOL Instant Messenger. I was MSN only, but I remember reading about Smarter Child and being like, this sounds amazing. I want yeah. AOL Instant Messenger, yep. but I didn't know anybody who used it. <laughs> For me, I think Smarter Child was probably the closest thing to an early popular bot. Mm-hmm. To the point where like you never even interacted with it, but you heard about it, right? Yeah, so, yeah. And I yeah. wanted to interact with it. Right. I considered yeah. downloading the software just so I could interact with Smarter Child. There are some pretty good interviews with the guy who made Smarter Child floating around there on the internet, actually. He's been tracked down recently and interviewed more in the past few years than he ever was in the intervening 20 years since Smarter Child was a thing. 
So how did you get started making bots? Basically, and this is the point at which I admit my creativity secrets, I just copy things that other people do that make me excited and happy because I can't just enjoy anything. I can't just consume something and enjoy it. As soon as I'm done consuming it, I'm like, okay, but how do I make something with this? Oh, for sure. And I am pretty sure that it was Everest Pipkin's Tiny Starfields that did it. That would make sense. I was just like, this is the best thing I've ever seen in my entire life. That's true. And all I want to do is look at an internet browser that is full of things like this Mm -hmm. and went looking to see what existed that was similar. And there wasn't that much. Yeah, at the time, not much. And so I stole the idea. Sorry, Everest. Hell yeah. I think you were the first person that I saw doing emojiscape type bots. There were others. My friend Sway did that as well. Yes, I think that might be who I'm thinking of. I think they preceded me. I just was very prolific because I can't do anything just a little bit. I can't just do something once. (laughs) I have to do it 18 times. Everest's Tiny Star Fields, for those who haven't seen it, it uses Unicode encoding. So it doesn't go into the emoji space. It's using like typeface type stars and that kind of thing. It might actually have been the derivative ones that like got me. (laughs) Who were the other ones by? There's Tiny Astronaut. So there's Tiny Astronaut, which inserts a little rocket ship an emoji astronaut of some kind into tiny star fields <laughs> and then there's also tiny mission control i never saw that. it's just absolutely the most charming thing and if you follow all three of them they thread and i think i started following those before i started following any other bots so for a while the bot content on my timeline was like just iterations of tiny of the star fields <laughs> And I still love them the best. And they're still my favourites. Having said that, the first bot I made wasn't an emoji bot. It was a bot that I think maybe it just responded like emoji hearts to people or something when you tweeted at it. But I actually can't remember what the inspiration for that was, if there was one. I think I must have found Tiny Starfields first and then eventually discovered that there were people making other things and then was like, what could I make? And at that point in time, I didn't have any idea of how to do any kind of procedural generation stuff. So the emoji bots were not at that moment an option for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was when Cheap Bots Done Quick existed or when I found out that it existed that I made 8 billion things that were all the exact same formula. <laughs> It's like you opened a pizza restaurant. You didn't invent the concept of pizza. (laughs) And all your pizzas are pizzas, but they're pizzas. People like pizza. I just offer more flavors of pizza. Right. The the quality's not. (laughs) Yeah, but there's a lot of flavors. (laughs) But there's a lot of flavors. Yeah. I just give the people what they want. Right. (laughs) It was one of those that for some reason really blew up. and. Yeah, I think the tiny gallery was the one that I saw. Yeah. That was because there's all those little emojis in square frames. Right. And you never see them. No one ever does anything with them because, like, what are they for? (laughs) So I was like, what can I do with those? The answer was the tiny gallery. (laughs) That was, I think it was brilliant. I made my first bot in 2006 or something like that. Uh, And it was actually an AOL Instant Messenger bot. They had this neat little hack where there was a phone number that you could text. It was like the AOL Instant Messenger phone number. And if you sent a text message prepended with someone's username, then it would IM that person. So like if you texted that number and then you said Darius Kazemi or whatever my username was, space hello, and I had instant messenger open, I would see hello from like some random number, but then you could identify yourself and let me know who you are. 
it wasn't a very useful thing, but it was a nice hack. I thought, oh, I could make an AOL Instant Messenger bot and interact with it through this text messaging thing. And at the time, it was like, oh, so I could actually text a bot and get information back. Oh, okay. So I set up a bot. It was just for myself. And all it did was, if you sent it a message with the name of a video game, it would go to Metacritic, search for the video game, and give you the game's Metacritic score. Mm -hmm. And so this was for when I was out shopping for video games. This was 2006. So it was basically pre-web connected phones. I had a web connected phone, but it was very slow and bad. And most websites didn't work on phones. So when I was out shopping for video games, I would text this number, which would then relay it to Instant Messenger, which would then do the lookup for the Metacritic score and then relay it back to me <laughs> over text. Nice. And, then, and, and I would impress my friends. I'd be like, oh, hold on one second. <laughs> put, put the name of some game in there, Katamari Damacy, and then it would text me back, Metacritic score 94 or whatever. So that was my first bot, and it was purely utilitarian. Mm. And it was just for me. It wasn't public in any way. I was the only user. A few years later, I joined Twitter in 2007. And then in 2009, I made my first Twitter bot, which was, again, basically just for me. And I was really obsessed with the game Spelunky. And I hacked and modded the game Spelunky to build a story generator that actually like measured what I was doing in the game and then would write a story, like a narrative that made sense. So if I'm playing the game and I like fall down and take a hit to my health and then I kill a bat and then I collect a treasure, it would tweet, ow, I sprained my ankle. Take that, you stupid bat. And then it would tweet, oh man, this treasure is going to come in handy later, you know, something like that. So I modded the game to tell a narrative about what I was doing. So it was kind of like streaming before streaming, but through text updates. Oh my God, that's so nice. So this was three years before what I consider the current crop of bots that I've made that I still make to this day. Mm -hmm. So this was three years before my next bot, which was Metaphor Minute. Mm -hmm. And that was the one that actually people started to notice and get excited about and that sort of thing. Yeah. And Metaphor Minute was just, it's like Mad Libs. It's just a noun is a noun, adjective, adjective. That's the whole template. And I used WordNick, which is an online dictionary service that you can ask, like, give me a random noun, give me a random verb. And it just tweets one metaphor every two minutes and that's all you said something to me about that being an exploration of a particular idea yeah it was a response to a chapter on metaphor in ian bogost's object-oriented ontology book alien phenomenology go on well so alien phenomenology great book it's five chapters and one of the chapters is called carpentry and it's a sort of a call to action for philosophers and people who like thinking about philosophy to attempt to do philosophy but not with words mm -hmm. so like build objects that explore philosophical concepts which you could say is like a lot of art attempts to do mm -hmm. at least critical art does so there was that which got me very very excited and then at the same time, there was a different chapter in the book called Metaphorism, where he sort of lays out this idea of being able to do phenomenological work about non-human experiences through metaphor. So one of the examples he gives oh. is like, you might be able to like put yourself in the shoes of a submarine by using the metaphor of a bat to okay. get there because bats use sonar and then a sub, oh. right? Like that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and he picked 
that specifically because of Nagel's uh, famous paper, What Is It Like to Be a Bachelor? I was sort of responding to two chapters in that book. I was using the concept of carpentry to respond to this concept of metaphorism. Mm -hmm. And basically my point with metaphor in it is like, you know, humans experience apophenia. We can see anything as a metaphor. Mm -hmm. So like how useful is metaphor was basically like my argument. And literally I was like, what if instead of writing a blog post, I just engage with this book the way that Ian would want me to engage mm -hmm. with it by building a thing. So that's what I did. That makes metaphor a minute make much more sense to me. <laughs> I remember finding it and being like, what what's this? Yeah, for? on its own, it's like, <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> So one of the things that I like about Metaphor Minute is that it had a bunch of unintended cool things that came about because of it, uh, just mm -hmm. as an object in and of itself. So for example, it's become, well, I'm not really on Twitter anymore, but for you know about five years, it was like a clock for me. I could tell how long I'd been looking at Twitter by counting the number <laughs> of Metaphor Minute tweets in my head. I knew that if I, and it's once every two minutes, so I knew that mm -hmm. if I've seen five metaphors, I've been looking at Twitter for 10 minutes and I should probably get off. God, that's actually a really good idea. <laughs> As someone with very, very bad time perception, actually, maybe I should follow it. <laughs> so, yeah, I didn't intend for it to be a kind of like clock or counter mm -hmm. for me, but it ended up being that. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, and then it was just cool to see other people respond to certain metaphors, and there were a lot of poets who got really into it, and I was mm -hmm. like, I'm, I'm kind of making fun of one of your central tools, but okay. <laughs> So, and then from there, I just really enjoyed, I talked about this in the first episode that we did about creative process. I just enjoyed the scope of bots, especially on Twitter, because you only had 140 characters to work with. Mm -hmm. And at the time, you were basically limited to text. And I was way worse at it back then than I am now at programming. Mm -hmm. And I was a beginner in really a lot of ways. It was my first real attempt doing like web programming and talking to APIs and that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. Because it was such a small scope, I was still able to do my first bot in like, yep. you know, it was a long evening. It was <laughs> like, I got home from work and like eight hours later, I had Metaphor Minute. That is what my non-cheat bots and quick bots were all yeah. like. But also that's exactly what made it fun. Yeah. Like I right. am a terrible programmer. I was a terrible programmer then, although I'm probably a more terrible programmer now because I don't really do it anymore. But it was like something that was a manageable enough scope that I figured I could probably teach myself, right. which was really satisfying. It's like, it's yeah. really nice to be able to finish a thing mm -hmm. and then it's just there and it exists and it just works on its own. And then you can move on to the next one. We've said this before, but constraints are great. I, I mean, I have one of those ebooks bots that everyone has, right? which I'm sure you <laughs> dislike intensely. No, I don't dislike them. I think ebooks bots, for those of you who don't know, this was basically something that was popular on Twitter for a while. It was named after Horse Ebooks, which was a popular fake bot account. Basically, an ebooks bot takes one's own personal social media feed and remixes it to create this uncanny version of yourself. Yeah. And I didn't like it until someone pointed out that it was kind of like having your own familiar or homunculus or something like that. And then I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. All right, I can, <laughs> I can, I can see like wanting to have this dark mirror of your, or light mirror of yourself uh, <laughs> that you can interact with. It's very Jungian in a lot of ways. I'm actually hosting an informal bots meetup in Portland this week, but it doesn't matter the logistics because by the time this airs, it will have been several weeks in the past. But our theme for the meetup is basically what are we all doing post-Twitter? Ah. Because Twitter has recently become 
much more unfriendly towards art bots. So mm. here's my spicy take on this Twitter shutdown. So the background is in mid-August, Twitter shut off access to one of their most important APIs. And just for context on an API, it doesn't matter what it stands for, but it's basically a way that your software can talk to Twitter's software and like do things with Twitter. And they shut off access to this thing called the streaming API, which is basically what gives a bot knowledge of what a person's timeline is. Mm -hmm. If you want to make a bot that responds to incoming messages, in the past you would have used the streaming API for that. Mm -hmm. And they shut off the streaming API and they replaced it with a different API that doesn't do what the streaming API does, but they also won't tell you what the difference is in what it's able to do. Oh. It's really bad. And on top of that, there's a lot of like tiers of payment. Like if you want access to more of this stuff and functionality, you have to pay more money, which wasn't the case in the past. Oh. And it really seems like they're tuning their entire apparatus for startups and businesses mm. that use bots to interface with their customers yeah. rather than an art bot type thing. It's actually at the point now where if you want to set up a new bot, you have to fill out a form. And last time I checked, the form asks you to state the business case for your bot. Yeah, this was what I thought. And it might be different now. I haven't looked. I gave up on Twitter at that point. But at the time, that's what it was like. I haven't heard otherwise. I haven't heard that it's changed. And my spicy take on this is that they got so pilloried in the press for like Russian bots influencing the U.S. elections. Mm. That somewhere they decided that they had to kind of lock down yeah. their bots and take a hard line. Yeah. And um, and so I assume it gives them the ability to point to it and go, "Look, we did this. You can't blame us anymore." Yes, it's a cover your ass type move. Even though a lot of Russian bots are actually just networks with humans, right? Right. Yeah, most Russian bots are actually just troll networks more than bots. So I know lots of people who've had bots shut down and taken off twitter what is particularly strange to me at the moment is that this has not happened to any of mine and i don't know why and i warned all of my friends who i was hosting ebooks bots for that their stuff would be going offline and it hasn't and i have other friends who have their own ebooks bots who have had them go offline and none of mine have and i don't know how i seem to have escaped why yeah there's a complicated like set of overlapping like whitelists and things too like i strongly suspect that if bots were made before a certain date they just don't get caught up in most of the common sweeps ah. of accounts so some of it has to do with the age of an account mm -hmm. I, and you know because this is twitter we don't know what their exact algorithms yep. are there for this kind no of thing of but, out. right but my guess is some of it has to do with age there might mm -hmm. be other things as well for all you know at some point some customer service person just flipped a switch on your account for one reason or another that said hey anything that emma makes is fine little did they know that everything i do is completely worthless <laughs> <laughs> it's mysterious what causes bots to be banned or not which Twitter. is almost worse than just having a really hard line set of rules that they always stick to and right it's really strange so a lot of bot makers have moved off of Twitter. We talked about Mastodon previously on the show. So a lot of bot makers have moved to there. There's a lovely server called botsin.space that is 
run by a person in the bot making community. Mm -hmm. uh, but then people are moving to other things too, like RSS or Tumblr. And I'm really interested to hear where people are going, which is why mm. I'm asking this of people at this meetup this week. I have one Mastodon only bot, which exists exclusively because Mastodon lets you have custom emojis. And it's very important. And I don't know how to explain it in words, but if you'd like to see it, then I guess we should link it. I'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> put it in the show notes. Put it in the show notes. It's the worst bot I've ever made. It's really good. It's literally 20 minutes of work. It's really good. <laughs> All of it was copying and pasting. You just described a bunch of my popular projects. So Yeah, I did not know that Tumblr was particularly good for bots. It's okay. The best thing about Tumblr is that they're barely maintained at all. Mm -hmm. So you can post, you know, whatever up there and it'll probably stick around. Is that is that a good thing? <laughs> no, but it's, uh, you know, I mean, I, I have a couple of Tumblr bots. Yeah, I had a few bots that would simultaneously post to Twitter and Tumblr. Usually it was my bots that generated animated GIFs because at the time, there was a time when Tumblr was where you would go to see animated GIFs and Twitter did not really support it natively or did didn't support it well. Mm -hmm. And so for a lot of my GIF bots, I would put them on Tumblr only. And then some of them I ported over to Twitter once Twitter added support for animated GIFs, which I think was in like 2013 so or 2014. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm familiar with your animated Yeah, GIF I made bots. one called like Scenes from the Wire. I think it was the first bot that used the subtitle data off of DVDs. Oh, cool. And it would grab a random subtitle and then it knows where that is in the queuing of a video. So it would also snip that portion of the video, put the subtitle under there, and it would basically just pull random scenes out of, in this case, it was the TV show The Wire, and host it on Tumblr. And it was my way of automating what a lot of fans would do with their favorite TV shows where they would take a scene that they liked and make a GIF out of it. But instead, this was taking mm. literally any scene. So sometimes it was just someone being like, mm -hmm. see you later and walking off screen, right? Like something totally. But also, yeah. that's actually kind of fun out of context. You could use that to end a conversation, right? So mm -hmm. <laughs> the best thing about that bot was when I would see people use the GIFs from that bot as reaction GIFs in the wild. <laughs> but there were a few that were just very creative and I would see actually used in multiple places. And it was like, oh, cool. My bot's actually like mm -hmm. creating things that are entering a vernacular. We've been talking for a while. There's a million things we could say about bots, but I think we at least covered some basic ground here and talked about our own little, you know, dalliances in the field. Thank you so much for listening to us talk about nature's people. This has been Too Much Not Enough. I'm Emma Winston, aka Deerfall on Twitter, formatted deer like the animal underscore F-U-L, or Deerfall with no underscore on mastodon.social, or you can find me on emmawinston.me. And I'm Darius Kazemi, aka Darius at friend.camp on Mastodon, or tinysubversions.com. <laughs>